I'm Tasha Pierce, and this is Sinister Silhouettes. So after a couple of weeks of just chill topics, we did the Aretha Franklin thing. We did the Latoya Ammons exorcism thing. And after a couple of weeks of those kind of light topics, we're bringing it back around to murder and mayhem. I'm going to give you guys a warning. This episode deals with the abuse and death of children. So if this is not your thing, this is your chance to see your way out. And also, you know, you can come back next week, Tuesday, and we will have yet another murder episode. However, that one will not be featuring small children. This one is featuring small children. Okay, thanks to everybody for joining me again here on Sinister Silhouettes. My faithful few and anybody new, welcome to the show. Welcome to the party. Now, we've been having a Friday party every Friday here for the last couple of weeks on Facebook Live. You can also find me on GetVocal.com. That way, if you want to jump in and say something to me as we're doing the live stream, you'd be able to do so. That is on Facebook and on GetVocal.com. Oh, and everyone's invited. This week will be a sip-along. So a sip-along is, the, the whole premise is this. I'm going to get fucked up. I'm telling y'all right off the top, I'm getting fucked up. But this is how we're going to do it. This live stream will be an hour long. Every five minutes, I plan to take a shot. So, if you're planning on sipping along with me, make sure we're drinking responsibly and nobody's going out and driving or doing anything crazy after that. But yes, let's have fun this week Friday. Uh, last week Friday, we, we talked about the Ahmad. Arbery case and the Sean Reed case and shit is still happening and we will touch on those current events in our Friday episode but today today we're going to talk about the Angie Hausman case remember being a kid and I'm gonna give give you a minute because some of y'all gotta go back just as long as I do right remember being a kid well in Gary when I was a child There were no buses that took us to Webster Elementary School. If parents didn't drop us off or pick us up, we endured the 15 to 20 minute walk with other children in the neighborhood. Of course, this was in the late 70s, early 80s. We we all knew about stranger danger, but rarely did we have to put those lessons into practical use. Now, rain, sleet, snow, we dressed for the elements and trudged back and forth to school. We never even gave a thought to not making it home. Now, the complexion of things began to change for us in 1984, but that's another story for another time. I've been teasing it, and I will eventually tell that story. I just wanted to jump in the Wayback Machine and take you with me. Now, today's story starts off like so many. A normal, mundane afternoon that suddenly turned into the stuff of nightmares. 
It was November 18, 1993 in St. Anne, Missouri. Angie Hausman was nine years old, and like every day, she was excited to get home when she hopped off the bus after school. She lived about five minutes from the bus stop. Some days she would run just to get home faster. Unfortunately for her, she would never make it to her home. There was a monster lurking, and he was one depraved and lucky son of a bitch. Today we will discuss the heartbreaking case of Angie and how the police never gave up on bringing her killer to justice. Now, 30 minutes after Angie's normal arrival time, her mom and stepfather began to grow concerned. It wouldn't take her this long to get home, even if she stopped and chatted with friends or neighbors along the way. And this wouldn't be completely out of the ordinary, the stopping and talking. Angie was known as a friendly child who was quick to make new friends. Now, while this is an admirable trait, could it also have made her vulnerable to potential predators? Just like my neighborhood, there were certain parents that lived close enough to the route the children took to and from the bus stop who would serve as lookouts. And they watched the kids and looked out for anyone who didn't belong in the area. Two days earlier, a parent had complained to the police about a strange man loitering about. And on this day, as luck would have it, none of those parents were at their usual posts. One of them was catching up on housework. The other one was caring for her sick parents. So Angie was definitely on the bus and had gotten off on her usual stop. It was as though after that, she just vanished. Once a couple hours passed with no sign of Angie, her parents, Ron and Diane Bone, had sounded the alarm. The St. Anne police began to search for the second grader. They called in help from the St. Louis Major Case Squad and the FBI when they determined that they were likely dealing with an abduction. These authorities, along with help from the community, began to look for evidence that would lead to her safe return. Now, there were appeals to the public and the abductor from the bones. It was hoped that the kidnapper would see their tears and spare their child. Sadly, that would not be the case. On November 27th, nine days after her disappearance, two deer hunters stumbled upon a horrific sight. They called in the St. Charles County Police about a body found at the August A. Bush Memorial Conservation Area. Nothing could prepare the officers for what they were about to see. In fact, I'm finding it very hard to describe this scene to you. The child was nude and had duct tape wound around her entire face except for her nose. Her clothes and winter coat were neatly folded next to her, along with her backpack. Her body showed signs of having been sexually abused and tortured by her abductor. She had been savagely beaten and starved over the week she had been missing. She was chained to a tree with her hands cuffed behind her back. The most awful part of this is that she had only been deceased for a matter of hours. This, this baby has survived these atrocities, 
having food and water withheld from her and the horrific sexual and physical abuse only to die of exposure to the elements. It goes without saying that this was the worst crime committing, committed against a child in the area. Parents became extra vigilant over their children. St. Anne was on high alert. Then the unimaginable happened. On December 9th, 1993, the body of 10-year-old Cassidy Center was found by pedestrians in an alley in Hazelwood, which is very close to St. Anne. The child was wrapped in two comforters and a pink curtain. Her jacket and sweater were pulled above her chest. Her jeans were pulled down over her ankles, inside out. A sheet was looped around each of her ankles and then tied in the middle to hold the ankles together. Near her body were distinct tire impressions made by a U-Haul truck. There was decomposition on the upper part of her body and at least uh, four tears to the scalp along with multiple fractures in the skull. She had bruises on her chin, right cheek, right shoulder, breastbone, abdomen, each side of her chest wall, and at the base of her neck. Numerous other bruises were found over her body. The condition of Cassidy's scalp indicated that she was alive when she received many of her injuries. The physician who performed the autopsy determined that there were at least five blows to her head and that the blows were significant enough to have caused death within half an hour. In less than one month, two girls about the same age were presumably sexually assaulted and murdered. This made many people question whether there was a serial killer operating in their community. St. Anne police worked with the Hazelwood authorities to see if these two crimes were connected. Now, in February of 1994, the police in the Hazelwood case made an arrest. Unlike the Hausman case, on December 1st, Cassidy had been seen by multiple people after school. She also had a personal alarm that she carried with her and her neighbor, Michael Goldbeck, made sure it was working that day. She went off to visit with friends. Later, she stopped at the home of Cassandra Quinn to play with her children. Now, Quinn's brother, Thomas Brooks, answered the door. When little Cassidy asked if his nephews were home, he snatched her into the house. Now, once inside, she fell down the steps to the basement, and that activated her alarm. So Brooks got spooked and threw it out into the yard. He then asked her to remove her clothes. And Cassidy tried to escape and she screamed at the top of her lungs. And when he realized that she wouldn't be compliant, that this wasn't going to be as easy as he thought it was, Brooks beat her about the head and body with a slat from a bed. Now, it is said that his sister knew the body was in her home. She didn't want to know anything about it. And she just told him to dispose of it. And that's a mother. That's actually as just as fucking sick as her pedophile brother, in my opinion. Now, neighbors tipped off the police when they noticed the U-Haul backing out of her drive. 
Neighbors had also found the baby's alarm nearby. So in 1994, Brooks was convicted of his crime and sentenced to death. Unfortunately, this piece of shit checked out early. He died in prison in 2000. The police were unable to establish any link between Brooks and the Angie Hausman murder. The evidence just didn't match. They continued to work the case, but even though there were some strange leads, it grew cold. Now, one of the weird leads came from a teacher at Angie's school. The day prior to Angie's disappearance, she told this teacher that she was going to visit the countryside with a relative. Even stranger is the reports that soon came in regarding Angie meeting an older gentleman wanting to start a friendship, and this unidentified perv accepted the offer and told her to call him uncle. This became a huge lead in the case of Angie's abduction and murder, but the investigation quickly turned dry in relation to this tip. Another crazy tip was said to have come from a boy named David. On Thanksgiving in 1993, two days before Angie's remains were found, 13-year-old David announced that he had a dream and knew where she would be located. Then he went on to predict her location and how she'd be found. Now this definitely got back to law enforcement and David repeated his story. He was able to lead them to the approximate area where she was found. And the police figured that he knew a little too much for him to not be involved. They took fingerprints and hair samples from the boy and sent them to the FBI crime lab. Now all the tests came back negative. David was then dismissed as a person of interest. Other suspects that were investigated and cleared include Bryant Squires, who on his deathbed in 1996 confessed to several murders. He also implicated a quote unquote friend of his. Now his nurses told police that Squires claimed Angie as one of his victims. Squires never named the friend, although he had been known to keep company with Nathan Williams, also a convicted murderer and child molester. Apparently it could not have been Williams who was an accomplice because he was serving time in prison at the time of Angie's murder. Investigators followed this lead and determined that their evidence didn't point to Squires. Also, uh, Texan Gary Stufflebean, Gary Stufflebean, <laughs> Gary Stufflebean became a suspect after he was linked to the sexual abuse and attempted abduction of an 11-year-old girl in Maryland Heights on November 8, 1993. He pleaded guilty in that case, but there was nothing to tie him to Angie. In March 1994, John Wayne Parsons, a confessed child molester arrested in Bradenton, Florida, had newspaper clippings about Angie's death in his possession. Parsons, however, was also cleared of the killing. Another nine-year-old girl was kidnapped and slain in Arlington, Texas in January 1996. No connection to Angie. It's hard to imagine that many creeps were out there then and that even more operate today. 
And how do these pieces of shit find tag team partners? I mean, how do you realize, hey, this guy's just a big piece of garbage as me? Did we just become best friends? And so it went. Tips came in and were dismissed. The case grew colder and colder. The poor Bone family went on with no answers. One year. Five years. A decade. Two decades. The evidence of Angie's gruesome death sat in an evidence locker. It seemed that despite their hardest work, the investigators continued to come up short. Until... Yeah, y'all knew there had to be light at the end of the tunnel. I just can't bring this baby back to life, but the next best thing is reporting on justice. So in November 2018, sources outside the prosecutor's office told the media that evidence from the case was being processed in the FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia. That included DNA from a pea-sized sample found in Angie's panties. By June 2019, the results came back and revealed there could only be one person in 58 trillion that contributed the sample. Now, I still must mention that he has not yet been convicted of this crime. And in the U.S., one is innocent until proven guilty in court of law. That said, a one in 58 trillion DNA match would be all the evidence I'd need. That person is currently sitting in a North Carolina prison for unrelated crimes. The sadistic fuck had been named. He was Earl Webster Cox, sucker. Earl Webster Cox, sucker. I, I can't stop myself from saying that. It's suckers at it. It's Earl Webster Cox, sucker. According to KSDK.com, Cox was born and raised in St. Louis and joined the Air Force in 1975. Five years later, he was court-martialed and served a sentence at Fort Leavenworth for sex offenses involving young children, the children he babysat while stationed at an Air Force base in Frankfurt, Germany. Now, Cox was free on parole in 1985, which was revoked in 1992 after he was again arrested and charged with sexual abuse of a child. He left Fort Leavenworth again at the end of 1992 and moved back to the St. Louis area. Get this. Even with his very disturbing history, this guy was never, ever on the authorities' radar no one would have connected him to the crime. The worst part is he lived just three blocks away from Angie and her family. Talk about too close for comfort. Also, according to court documents, Cox was involved in a child pornography network starting in 1997. Now, while living in Colorado, he was caught in an FBI sting operation where an agent posed as a 14-year-old girl online. He pleaded guilty in 2003 to trying to entice a minor across state lines for sexual activity and to charges for the 45,000 images of child pornography FBI agents found on his home computer. 
Cox has been in federal custody ever since. Now, though he had finished serving his sentences by 2011, federal authorities had held on to him, deeming the pedophile as a sexually dangerous person, according to court papers quoted by KMOV. On June 5, 2019, St. Charles County prosecuting attorney Tim Lomar announced charges at a press conference in the, uh, at the St. Charles County Police Department. He was flanked by a dozen or more experts, investigators, and scientists who had been involved over the years. Cox has been charged with first-degree murder, first-degree kidnapping, and sodomy. It has been stated that there is reason to believe that Cox didn't act alone. It makes me wonder if that deathbed confession made by Bryant Squires could hold some credence. Still unknown, for instance, is where Cox kept Angie during her nine days in captivity and whether he had assistance in concealing her whereabouts. According to a June 7, 2019 New York Daily News article, Cox could additionally be implicated in at least one other case. He was accused of molesting two seven-year-old girls in 1989, but the charges were dropped. The prosecutor's office in St. Louis County is considering new charges against Cox for that case. After 25 years, little Angie Hausman's killer is finally caught up in the wheels of justice. May he be torn to pieces. It is remarkable that the evidence was well-preserved enough to be an integral part of bringing this pervert to justice. Hopefully, as science and technology continue to advance, more stories like this can be told. Even more optimistically, maybe just knowing that they are a genealogy test away from being apprehended will persuade a would-be murderer from committing the act. Sadly, Angie's mom did not live long enough to learn the identity of the beast who took her baby away. She passed away three years ago after fighting cancer. And that is the tragic case of Angie Hausman. Now, one of the things I want each member of my audience to do is research just how many sexual predators live in your area. The results may be staggering. And then let that number make you commit to holding your children and grandchildren close. Be present and alert. Even for simple things like getting off the school bus, create an army with other parents and force a predator to think twice about operating on your block. Now, because a lot of these stories are so tough to get through, I thought it would be different if each week I leave you with something to think about. It may be pop culture, random musings, quotes from famous people or what have you. If you want to participate, send me anything on social media or to tcbytb at gmail.com and I'll uh, share responses as they come in. This week, something to think about is this. Were there ever any black people on Friends? Now, it's hard to believe that there wouldn't be. I, I really wasn't a fan because we had Living Single, which was Friends only before Friends, but I digress. I just don't recall there being any black folks where they lived. 
in the early 2000s like none or I could be all wrong so friends fans straighten me out I promise I won't just google the answer I'll be waiting for you for your feedback and on that note please don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcatcher I also need some new reviews on Apple Podcasts lastly share the show with a friend or if you hate the show Share the show with an enemy. Just share it, okay? And uh, <laughs> with the, on that note, thank you so much for hanging out. Hopefully, you guys catch up with me on Friday, Facebook's live stream, or on GetVocal.com. And until next week, stay the hell out the shadows. Peace. <laughs>